It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. One thing I've been talking a lot about on the show recently is my desire to understand my body and how that impacts my mind and how my mind, my brain health is impacting the way that I feel emotionally. And I've shared a little bit about my experience lately with wearable technology. I have been using Apple Watch for years, very casually though. I I think I just enjoy the way it interacts with all my other Apple products, to be honest. And I saw the limitations that it had with sleep. It's a huge issue in my life is figuring out some of my sleep disorder behaviors and trying to narrow it down. So then I got another piece of wearable technology to help monitor that. And it's been such an interesting journey because Every day I wake up and I'm really curious about the data. (laughs) But then it's like, what do you do with this data? Is the data even helpful to figuring out something? Is there going to be answers there? And the guest today isn't a sleep specialist, but this man, Jay, has a startup based around wearable technology called Actia. Am I saying it right? Yes, Actia. And it's a Swiss startup, but you yourself are not Swiss. No, no, I grew up in St. Louis. (laughs) How did you get involved with a Swiss startup based around wearable technology? And what exactly is the technology? I'll have you reveal that. Yeah, sure. Well, I'll start with the what exactly is the technology. So Actia is a Swiss company and the founders over the last essentially two decades have developed a wearable technology that can continuously monitor blood pressure in an easy, automated, and passive way. And that doesn't require a cuff or the typical things that we think about about measuring blood pressure. It's just an optical sensor at the wrist on a bracelet. And so that's the company. And so getting to your point about data is that in blood pressure measurements and hypertension management, and me as as a cardiologist was consistently doing this and finding that there were tremendous gaps in understanding someone's blood pressure, even though we understand and have understood for years that blood pressure is important, hypertension is important, and and the world's most common chronic disease, it's the most primary input to cardiovascular disease and death, but we're really bad at treating it. Only 20% of people who have high blood pressure have it under control in the world. 26% of people in the U.S., And there's a lot of that has to do with just a lack of understanding of the data. And part of that, there's many aspects to it, but part of it is people don't generally put on that cuff and take their blood measurements on a routine basis multiple times a day. And so that's what the company is really aiming to do is to use the technology, which is sort of this really transformative technology, but really gather and collect a tremendous data set. That's what we've been working on. And I think coming back to your first question, how did I get involved in it? It was, well, it was a bit, sort of a long journey. Happy to talk anything that you want to about it, but practicing cardiologist for over 10 years and 
and really after a time, after over a decade of practice, wanted to take that expertise and knowledge of real world practice and then have a different type of impact, have a broader impact on many more people rather than one person at one time. And so it started me down a journey of exploration and sort of discovery where the end result was is joining this company at Actia as the chief medical officer. I'm really curious about how the difference between when you were practicing medicine and caring for clients or working on on people's health conditions versus now with looking at that data because one difference it seems like is evolving in the health space is the difference between going to the doctor and having the doctor look at all your health metrics and you as the patient, at least in my experience, it's been turning everything over to the doctor and letting the doctor be worried about it. I mean, the main metrics that I've paid attention to in my life has been weight. It's very commonplace for people to have a scale at home. They step on the scale, might see what their number is. But other than that, maybe it's a privileged thing too. I haven't had a lot of major health conditions aside from my sleep disorder where I have even had to be concerned. I mean, for instance, I've never really paid attention to blood pressure. That in itself is likely a privilege based on the state of my body. So when I see those numbers noted by a doctor, (laughs) I'm ignoring it. I don't even think about the numbers again until my next doctor's visit. So I'm curious for your experience as a doctor, if there is a big transition happening between that type of experience that patients have versus now they can wear a device and know what those numbers are every day or perhaps multiple times a day and really take more agency over it. Is that the shift that's happening with wearable technology? I think it's the shift that people talk about. It's what we imagine. It's what we ideate and talk about at conferences. And it's what people say the future is. I think it remains to be seen how that interface between tech companies, digital health companies, wearable companies, and true healthcare delivery, how that integration actually happens is far messier and more difficult than people might imagine. But that is the promise of technologies like wearables. And to put it in a broader context, for thousands of years, people would go to healthcare providers of any type And basically, you would have to go to the healthcare location or provider. You'd have to submit yourself through their usual procedures. Everything was built around their process, the healthcare system itself. And then they would deliver back a prescriptive response, kind of like what you were saying. It's like, here's the response. Here's what you should do. And here's the test that we need to run. And here's the medicine to take, or here are the interventions to try. And you take that and you go home and you go on your way until a year later or six months later or whenever the next time you interact with that group. In the last 20 years, between about 2000 and 2020, this concept of a patient-centered healthcare has come up. People have generally heard about that term, patient-centered healthcare. But even that was still in within the context and the walls of a healthcare system. But the difference was the patient would be at the center of those discussions and multiple parts of the complex medical system would be talking with each other about what to do with that patient. And still, then the answer would be relatively prescriptive and say, here's sort of the approach that we think as a collective 
healthcare system is best for your condition or your disease or whatever. I think where we're going in the future, where we have to go, because there is no alternative, is what I call patient-driven healthcare. And that is where the combination of technology being widely available to millions and billions of people really can enable that step. And really what technology does, or has the promise to do, is not to actually measure things and like give you numbers. It's to give you access to knowledge that before the last 10 to 15 years, people wouldn't have access to. People who were not healthcare experts didn't have access to that knowledge, that expert knowledge, and you had to go to the healthcare system to access that knowledge. As a doctor, that's really why people come to see me. It's not to get a test. It's not to get a surgery. It's not to get some treatment. They come seeking knowledge, seeking the answer, seeking understanding of themselves, of their health, whatever is going on with them. In most developed countries, that's reasonably accessible, although even in the U.S., there's great disparities in access to that care and knowledge. But beyond developed countries and the rest of the world, there's very little to no access to that expert knowledge. And so the real promise and the real sort of transformational purpose of technology is dissemination of that expert knowledge so that it puts that ability for you to get that knowledge and for whatever condition might be or the aspect might be, to get that knowledge on your wrist or on your phone through whatever next iteration of technology exists. And that's how I look at the promise of technology in healthcare. I appreciate that perspective. And it does feel quite messy, especially for me, who's in the patient's position. And I've been on this journey to figure out what's going on with my sleep for the past year and a half very heavily. And one thing I've faced a lot is perhaps what I would perceive, frankly, as some ignorance or some situations in which I'm wondering, why doesn't the doctor have the answers? And I'll walk away from a doctor's visit where sometimes I've literally been told, well, we don't know what's going on. And there's end of sentence. And I'm sitting here as the patient going, but something's going on. And this is a concern. I'm not going to take I don't know for an answer. And that pushed me towards a wearable technology because I wanted to be able to collect the data, bring it back to them and say, now that I have the data, can you help me? But it's not that simple. I've also done something which I imagine a lot of people do now because of technology, which is my own research. But that's also very messy because we have so many different sources telling us all different types of information. And we know the classic WebMD type of experience that that goes on between patients and healthcare providers where patients are trying to diagnose themselves. And I imagine as a doctor, there must be some frustration there because you can get a missed a diagnosis online. So how do we work our way through all this messiness to get the real answers that we're seeking? Well, not that I have all the answers, but what I would say is that healthcare is almost always going to be messy. It is. It's not going to be perfect. It's not a science. That's why it's called the art of medicine. In the end, whatever data exists, whatever tests you do, whatever chat GPT tells you, whatever Google tells you, whatever WebMD tells you, 
In the end of the day, the patient is trying to do one thing when they're sitting in with the physician. They're trying to tell the physician what's wrong. William Osler is considered the father of modern medicine. He's an English physician long ago. And he wrote sort of the principal textbook of how to take a history in physical that's taught still to this day in all medical schools throughout the country. And one of his primary tenets that's still passed down is listen to the patient. They're trying to tell you what's going on. They're trying to tell you what's wrong. And that's why, and to this day, correct, without, despite all the data, all the technology, all the stuff that's there, that's coming, that will be there in the future, just listening to the person and taking that history in my 20 years of being a physician is by far the most important thing I can possibly do for that person. And usually, not always, but usually within five minutes, if I'm just listening to them, I know what's wrong. I know what to do. I know what the next steps are. And that's not because I'm like some, I don't know, house doctor, whatever, like crazy doctor or some brilliant person. It's just because I have enough experience to know after treating thousands and thousands of patients, there are certain parts of the history that you pick out the data, you pick out the knowledge, and then you put it all together and you synthesize. Now, in the future, will ChatGPT do that for me? I have no idea. It might. Who knows? But for the time being, for the foreseeable future and for the existing listeners, that's really what we're trying to do. So data is important. Data is helpful. Wearable data is helpful. Medical test data is helpful. It's all helpful. But in the end, it's always to you're just collecting different parts of the history and trying to put it all together. That's really the crux of, of finding those answers. And sometimes we still don't know. And that's the truth. We do have to accept that sometimes. And I think that's where, as you mentioned before, and he's like, some, a lot of times patients come to healthcare systems expecting them to figure it out for them. And 90 plus percent of the time, they probably can. In a small percentage of time, they cannot. They will not. They won't figure it out. And they might go to two or three or four doctors and maybe the fourth one figures it out. Maybe nobody figures it out. But irrespective of that, which type of person that is, is empowering people to collect their own data, to have their own evidence, to show and to look at their own, sort of do their own studies at home. If I did this, this is what happened. If I did this, this is what happened with my data. And being able to iterate on that and then bring those empirical sort of information to physicians as partners to then let's sit together and try to piece it together. That's what you have to do. And so that, again, getting back to this wearable idea, that is really a clinical grade wearable that's able to do some of those things to create those feedback loops, to create activation, empowerment, and knowledge. That's what matters. Some of the other features, a lot of the other features in wearables is just fluff, honestly. It's just like we're trying to sell devices. So let's just put in some random stuff and people will buy stuff. But when you're really trying to create something of value to a patient, really have to figure out how to empower them, how to make them understand things more. And I imagine it's going to take some time on both or three ends, perhaps. And we have the companies like yours where you as a team are committed to creating something valuable and not just fluff. And that's a big responsibility because in a capitalist society, companies are saying, ooh, like wearable technologies 
cool and trendy and people are willing to spend their money on it. So yeah, maybe we give somebody peace of mind just because they're wearing something on their wrist. And the downside is it can be very confusing. I mean, I've certainly found with this newer wearable technology I have, it didn't make a lot of sense to me and still has a way to go. It's giving me enough where I feel satisfied, but it's very confusing and messy. So there's the side of the technology that has a lot to work through. Then there's the customer or patient education itself. Like what data is important for me to know? What should I be paying attention to? How do I conduct my experiments? Then there's also the practitioner side, the doctor physician side of it. And my current experience is I'm a little ahead of the game than the physicians I've worked with recently. Whereas I walk in there and say, hey, I have a wearable device. It's telling me these things. And most physicians just stare at me blankly. They don't know what to do with that data. (laughs) And so now I feel like, whoa, now what do I do? How can we create that partnership? And what do you see evolving in all three parts? Do we all have to work together to make this happen? And how long is that going to take? Going to take a long time is the answer. But the truth is, it's more than just three also. So first of all, let's start with the sort of physician skepticism, lack of understanding, unwillingness to take it. So you have to remember, so in the current model of healthcare, physicians are going to use the data that they trust. There's a lot of reasons to not use any data that isn't trustworthy. That's scientific methodology, to be skeptical until until the data is proven to be accurate and reasonable. So, for example, in wearables can create all kinds of data sets, but have they been validated? Have they been tested rigorously, scientifically? Are they regulated by regulatory agencies? Because that's a high bar to pass to scientifically to then be able to be a regulated medical device, which most wearables aren't and don't have any components of. But so physicians are not used to taking data from this unregulated sphere of products, right? When we order tests, they're all regulated devices. They all have had to pass pretty rigorous specifications to be able to say, we can use that data for clinical decision-making. So generally, physicians are going to be less willing to take unregulated data and say, I'm going to use that to make decisions on this person. And there's still, at this point, I think we're kind of in in the infancy of this sort of wearable health tech sort of space, there's still a lot of fluff. There's a lot of data that isn't validated. There are categories of, of devices or features of devices that are completely unregulated. So how come how much can you really rely on that data when it comes to medical decision making? And so that's where the physicians are generally coming from. So there has to be more testing. The companies the physicians, the healthcare organizations have to do more evidence-based research using those devices and to gain that trust. And that takes time, money, and effort. And what generally happens is that consumer-grade companies, consumer electronics companies, have never played in that space of regulated medical devices. It's a very different model than selling direct to consumers with like you can get your text messages on this thing or like that's totally unregulated and honestly not that difficult from a medical evidence standpoint. So they have to consciously make a shift to say, okay, now we're going to put 
a huge amount of resources. If we really want to be trusted by healthcare, then we have to prove that we are trustworthy. And that right now, there's a big gap between wearable devices and trustworthy medical devices. And there are very few companies that have traversed that gap to say, we are going to do go down that giant rabbit hole and take that effort to really become a regulated medical device and show our quality and show our standards. And because there's so much in this unregulated space, it muddies the water and creates a lot of noise. So people, for example, in our companies, like we are a regulated medical device, we've done that, but and some others have, but there's so much noise coming from this other side that it's hard to pick out for most physicians and even people. It's hard to pick out, well, which one is trustworthy? Which one has evidence? Which one has scientific data behind it if I'm going to try to use it for health? Very muddy sort of pool right now. I think that those things will consolidate. I think there will be regulatory agencies are already starting to write some guidelines to say, here's what we would consider. Here's what you need to do to clear these thresholds. And I think healthcare slowly, it's a very slow process, will sort of start gaining evidence from certain devices that really, companies that really try to get those that evidence spelled out and then they'll have more answers. And then when you do bring that one specific device that they are understand and have seen that they can trust, they'll say, okay, Whitney, yeah, I can use that. And that's probably, you know, unfortunately, it takes a long time to get anyone anything innovative changed in healthcare because there are all these different aspects to it. Generally speaking, from innovation to being on the healthcare market takes roughly 17 years. So... And where are we in that timeline right now, if you were to guess? Any, each one innovation. So anything, like if you develop some new device, new product, new thing, generally it takes 17 years, not on, that's on average. So it's just a long time for each one of these things. And then you pair that with a capitalist market. Many of them are venture-backed companies, which means that they have to show return within three to five years. So there's going to be a lot of them that don't work out. And that's just the nature of it. The other challenge right now as the case with new technology is the expense because the Apple Watch is not that cheap, right? It's something I've justified over years of having one. And to your point, I don't really view the Apple Watch as a medical device. I think they've developed some elements that over time, but that's not why I use it. When I got the newer piece of technology, it was... Again, I just wanted more data about sleep, but I have to take some of that with a grain of salt given I don't even know. I, you've inspired me to go check and see, it. is it regulated? You know what device I have, but I won't mention it right now. I don't know that much data. And that's something interesting as a consumer too, is not understanding what might be important because a lot of these tech companies have the money to spend on marketing. They can be very savvy about it. And they are probably thinking the consumer doesn't either need to or want to know some of this information. They're just looking for a quick fix or they're looking for something more superficial. And then, of course, there's all the hype involved. When I started considering wearable tech beyond the Apple Watch, I was actually very skeptical. I'm a huge Apple products enthusiast. I have almost everything they make. Maybe now at this point, I have everything they make. Yeah, I just love it. <laughs> it's not that hard to influence me, but I still felt skeptical. Like, I don't really need a watch. I've never been a big watch wearer. 
And it wasn't until I was gifted one that I got really excited about it. And now it's like, I can't see myself not wearing it. With the other wearable technology, I'm in the newer phase of skepticism and thinking, this could be a short-term thing for me, or I'm not sure about this. The one that I have is a subscription model. And I feel a little uncomfortable about that. I don't actually know how Actia works in terms of your price model. I would love to hear your thoughts on it because the subscription model kind of makes sense because I think, okay, it gives me flexibility. I can try out the device and if I don't like it, I'm not attached to it. I don't have to spend any more money on it. However, if I do want to stick around with it, that makes me a bit uncomfortable too because the annual fee of this current device that I'm using, I think is around the cost of the flat fee of the Apple Watch. And my Apple Watch I'm finding works really well for many years after buying it. So the cost of this wearable technology can be really high over many years. And I feel like, is that beneficial to the consumer and the patient? Or is that getting in the way of people utilizing this technology? Well, it's certainly... so. It's a good question. And I don't know that I have the answers for all of it. But I mean, I think from our standpoint in Actia, we sell on a flat one-time purchase at this point. But one of the downsides that I've learned as I've been in this role of selling anything that involves hardware is that it's extremely difficult to actually make a profit if you have to manufacture hardware. These larger companies like Apple, Samsung, giants of the consumer electronics have really figured out the manufacturing. I and mean, they've done, they've built factories themselves. They, they've gotten the cost down as much as they can. They charge a premium fee. For a lot of them, you're in their ecosystem. So even though you're not paying a subscription for that device, you're paying in other ways. And we all do that <laughs> with uh, some part of the subscription model, right? So that's, that gets you with that ecosystem. The challenge with like one-off wearables, like a separate one or a separate thing that exists as proprietary hardware is just what you just said, is that it's very difficult to create a payment structure that actually would create sustainability for the company. Otherwise, they're not going to make money and they'll not be around. So that's one aspect to it. The other aspect is that, so subscription models make sense if they provide significant value. Now, what is that value is the question. And how much value do they provide? It depends on the company. And so I think that's really the point. It's like, as we're thinking about a subscription model, let's say in Actia, we have to think very carefully is that, okay, we're a regulated medical device. So hopefully people recognize how difficult that is to achieve and how much resources it takes to do that. And two, then you have to show that you're able to do something that provides either a data or an interactive experience that is so significantly valuable to that person that they're willing to pay a few dollars each month or whatever it is that that company is charging. So we're working on it, but that's a big challenge. And so one of the things about Actia is that overall in the long term, we have architected the system so that none of our hardware is really proprietary. It's all in the software. And so in the long term, with some partnerships, we hope to be able to ride on top of other wearable devices as software And so then you don't have to manufacture the hardware. You don't have to wear two pieces of wearables or more. And it actually allows you to expand your install base and expand your reach in terms of access to people. 
But that's really hard to do unless you've really built it from the ground up without proprietary hardware. And that's a challenge because many wearable companies have done it with proprietary hardware. And then in that scenario, that's a difficult thing to sell because you're realistically never going to compete with those giant consumer electronic companies. You're just not. So then either you're going after a very niche market, like I'm going to go after this one small slice and I'm going to get really good at that, or you're going to get acquired or you're not going to go anywhere. This is all fascinating to me. I'm really interested in the monetization structure. And I think that transparency is really beneficial to the consumer because one reaction I had listening to you talk about that is compassion. I've been sitting here going, oh, this company, like they're trying to extract all this money from me. And I feel a little bit resentful or something or annoyed that I'll have to renew if I want to stick with this thing. But then the compassion comes up of, well, if if I know that my money is going somewhere that can keep the company afloat so I can continue using it, but also if it's going toward the development of a product that is helpful to me in the long run, I'm more likely to, to keep my money there. And perhaps you could say the same thing with Apple. I mean, I've been a very long-term user and I believe in them. They've earned my trust. They've never really let me down. Like I have a good relationship. So it's easier for me to say yes to spending my money. And like you said, it's a premium product. Even these headphones, for example, they're kind of insanely expensive in the market compared to the competitors. But Apple's overwhelming influence on me helped me justify spending more money on something that I probably could have saved and bought something else, right? So I think as a consumer, some of this psychology is really helpful and I appreciate your transparency. And that leads me to another resistance point that I've heard. In fact, my dad is a great example. For the holidays this past year in 2022, my sister, who convinced me to get the device I have, she wanted to buy the exact same one for my mom and dad for their holiday present. And so excited. She's thinking, oh, this data is going to be so helpful for their health. They're going to love it. She gave it to my mom. My mom gets it, Does barely knows how to use the app because this device requires you to use your phone. There's no screen on the device I have. So my mom needed a lot of education, but she still wore it. My dad, though, was very concerned about data privacy. And I think this comes up a lot for people that are thinking through this, where I'm someone where I love data and I'm willing to give away some of my privacy in order to acquire data for myself. I'm willing to give away some of my data in order for advancements to happen if there's transparency in how my data is being used. My father, on the other hand, very skeptical, very concerned about data privacy, not willing to take a lot of risks, and thus he returned his wearable device because he was too afraid to use it. So can you speak to any of the data privacy side of it for people that are concerned? Yeah, I think it's one of the problems of our time, honestly. I mean, we see that in all respects, not just wearables, but in all the accounts we have on internet accounts and search accounts and social media platforms. We're seeing it all over the place, right? Your data, basically, if you're online at all, which is almost all of us in most of the world, developed world, certainly, it's very hard to know who has your data. You don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't think anyone knows. 
who has my data or pieces of my data out there. And so that's one aspect that I'm certainly not an expert in, but that is a major concern for us. I think there are people who are less concerned about it, clearly, than others. But I think our generation, I think the next generation, hopefully will be more concerned about it because honestly, that's a primary monetization strategy of a lot of these companies is selling your data. And, and we've seen that in, in a number of ways. So that's the sort of more cultural, social aspect. But on the medical side, on the healthcare side, obviously there's an even higher, I wouldn't say higher, but a very significant concern always has been for what's called personal health information or PHI. And if you have a medical product that is in the world and is collecting data from you, but then that data is going through a cloud server to somewhere else and that data is flying around, there has to be fairly strict end-to-end encryption and there has to be uh, server protections, and cybersecurity threat risk uh, plans and all these different things in place that are, a lot of them are regulatory driven. So there's a huge push from regulatory agencies to really focus on data security and data privacy. In the end, none of it's bulletproof, right? I mean, we've seen how many times have we seen some companies pay millions and millions of dollars for security measures and then somebody, they get hacked. It is bound to happen in a digital world. So that is somewhat of the trade-off, but as much as we can and as much as protection as there can be, we have to have those sort of end-to-end encryption and the data privacy and cybersecurity rules. And I think that any company that even wants to think about healthcare as a significant part of their product is going to be held to those very high standards. And again, that's another area where all of these things, anytime there's a regulation involved, regulation, risk, security, privacy, it just adds to the complexity and the cost of delivering the product to us in the consumer's hands. But it is a huge concern and it's already forefront in the minds of regulatory agencies. So I don't think it's going to continue to be pushed as a primary need from these, from any type of wearable or any sort of company that's delivering data to multiple sources. The other thing that seems to come up along the same lines, you mentioned chat GPT earlier. I am very interested in artificial intelligence, but trying to be <laughs> a little bit more skeptical. It's easy for me to get excited about developments that save me time. The artificial intelligence is a tool that I feel like I'm using in conjunction with my brain, much like I see a wearable device as a tool that's giving me information that I can then do something with, as we've been talking about today. But there are people concerned that wearing these devices is making us kind of like cyborgs. Like there's fears of the advancements of technology and how that might interfere with the human experience. And I'm curious about your thoughts about that too. Are we headed this direction where we're constantly tethered to technology? Just what are your viewpoints and where we stand with that and the pros and cons? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if anyone, if you've seen uh, Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, but ChatGPT, when it first came out, I was just immediately thought of Hal and I was like, oh boy, we're there. But yeah, I don't know, honestly. I mean, I think that's going to be an overriding concern. I mean, clearly with quantum computing and AI, generative AI, we're at a different inflection point in how technology is going to impact our world going forward. But at the end of the day, so I think it'll be a tool. It can be used for a lot of good ways. I think equally well, it can be 
clearly can be misused in a lot of ways. So there's, as far as I can tell, with my nascent knowledge of this, there's no clear way to regulate it. And so those are clearly risks involved. But having said all that, it would be foolish to just discount it and say, well, no one's ever going to adopt this. It's not true. They are going to adopt it and it's going to be applied in calculable ways. So I think from my perspective as a physician, I say, you just got to get ready, got to be ready for change, got to be ready to maybe that becomes your assistant. Maybe that becomes a part of your daily practice somehow in the future. Maybe it helps you speed up in certain ways or slow down in others. Try to look at it in an optimistic way. Try to incorporate it in sensible ways. But still, for the foreseeable future, unless someone invents like a robot with chat GPT inside them to then become a nurse, which would be very odd, or a physician, maybe that's a little far off. But in the end, you can get a recommendation from ChatGPT. You can get multiple recommendations from ChatGPT. You can even get a reasonable diagnosis list from ChatGPT even today. But who's going to do that? Who's going to actually execute the plan? Who's going to walk you through chemotherapy? Who's going to sit with you in the hospital? Who's going to talk to you about how to go on hospice? Who's going to tell you about, here's what surgery looks like. Here's what it feels like. Who's going to talk to your daughter or son when you're unconscious in the bed or when there's only ones left to talk to. So that's the human element of medicine that I don't see AI taking over for at this point in time. And after nearly 20 years in medicine, to be very honest, that's the most important part of our job. And the knowledge part of it, of getting to the right diagnosis or giving the right medicine, honestly, is the easier part. It's the human element that is much more difficult. And unless people, maybe there'll be a time when people stop wanting that or stop caring about it. But my guess is, as human beings, that's pretty far off. That's so beautifully said. And it's such an important reminder because I see so many benefits to technology. I've always been drawn to it my whole life. I see it as the tool that we've been talking about. I see it as a form of expression. There's creativity involved. There's the data involved. I just see it as helpful. And I also haven't lost my desire for human connection. I feel confused and people get so concerned because maybe it's ignorance. I do feel like the two can work in harmony. And it is that messy time where we're figuring out it. I mean, a lot of this is very new to your point. Like, this needs a lot of time. Artificial intelligence has been around for a while. And yet it feels like it just started based on the rise of tools like ChatGPT, which have only really been in the public conversation in this way for like four or five months as of the time of this recording. So it's like, yes, it goes way back before that. But the early adoption or the adoption curve, I think is what it's called, right? Like we're still on the upward side of it and a long way to go. So there's so much remains to be seen. And I'd love to come back around to some of the basics of why you created the, or why you've been involved with this company, why this product exists. Because like I said, from the beginning, I have a lot of ignorance around blood pressure. So I want to make sure that we touch upon this before the end of the episode. As I mentioned, perhaps that's a privilege to have not yet in my life been concerned with it. I don't really understand hypertension, but I'm trying to. Actually, when I went through my well-being coach certification program, that was 
and still is as of today in April 2023. I have a long way to go to learn about it. But as a wellness coach, that's part of the code of conduct is to understand. So my current understanding is the metrics. Like I know what good blood pressure looks like metrics wise, but I don't really understand yet what it means. (laughs) So could you break that down into terms for anyone else who's like me who's feeling a bit ignorant? Sure. Let's do some blood pressure 101. So blood pressure is probably most people know you get a top number and a bottom number. Top number is called systolic, bottom number is called diastolic. The top number reflects the pressure within the major arteries of your body during a heartbeat. When the heart squeezes and pushes all the blood out, that blood has to move down the arterial tree and there's a distension of the arteries and that's the peak of the pressure. And that pressure is reflected in the top number as systolic blood pressure. That's the top. Then between heartbeats, that distension of the blood vessels goes back down to normal. The blood gets pushed down to the organs and it gets back to a sort of a steady pressure between heartbeats. That number is the bottom number called the diastolic blood pressure. Neither one is necessarily much more important than the other. They're both important. They both reflect different parts of the cardiac cycle and the pressure in the arteries. And that's what blood pressure is. And hypertension or high blood pressure is a very exceedingly common problem. 1.4 billion people in the world, 130 million people in the US, one in two Americans over the age of 65 will have high blood pressure or has it. And generally, high blood pressure starts even when someone's in their 20s, 30s, and 40s of life. It's not necessarily a disease of the elderly. It starts earlier. You don't feel it. There are no symptoms. So people generally don't know that they have it. In fact, almost half of the people who have high blood pressure don't know they have it. I mean, what 30-year-old is going and routinely checking their blood pressure on a routine basis? Not many. And nobody goes to the doctor generally very often when you're young because you don't have any problems. So just human nature. So that's what high blood pressure is. And people understand, I think, conceptually that high blood pressure is tied to heart disease, but it's tied to many things. It's not just heart disease. It's heart attacks, strokes, kidney problems, kidney failure, arrhythmias, heart failure, reproductive problems. There can be problems after pregnancy and have a high blood pressure. There can be problems during pregnancy and have high blood pressure. It's tied to diabetes. There's a number of problems. It can cause vision loss, sort of countless other medical problems for which the primary input for those problems is a history of high blood pressure. And so high blood pressure's risk or the main detriment, the main downside of having high blood pressure is time dependent. It's not one day of having high blood pressure. It's not one minute. It's not one hour. It's not even one week or one month. It's years of having uncontrolled or less controlled high blood pressure. It's years of spending your life time in a higher than normal range of pressure. And over that time, that higher pressure does its damage to the tiny, tiny vessels of your brain, your eyes, your kidneys, your heart, everywhere else. And that's how it causes its damage. That's how it leads to its damage. So that's why it's called the silent killer, because it's silent, doesn't have symptoms. But in the end, it causes about 18 to 19 million deaths per year, 20,000 deaths a day, just from hypertension. So that's why it's such a big problem 
And the way the medical system is designed, it's designed to be reactive, right? It's designed to treat a problem that exists today. It's designed to help you when you're having a heart attack or a stroke or a kidney problem. That's what it's designed for. It's not designed to be preventive. It's not designed to be proactive. Let's solve the problem 10 years before it happens, or let's try. It's not designed for that. So that's why hypertension, as we talked about before, is sort of poorly managed, even though we have lots of treatments for it and we have good understanding about the disease, it's not well managed. So that's what high blood pressure is. And that's why it's important. Thank you. It's really helpful for me. And I appreciate that because we all learn differently, right? Until I started studying well-being to get my certification, this didn't really make sense. And like I said, it, I'm still trying to conceptualize it and put it into practice. And having not been exposed to something can lead to a lot of ignorance. And so I'm curious about what you believe are the best ways to be proactive, given that the medical system isn't necessarily leaning on or focusing on that. Is that where the device comes in, where you know your data? And then if you're seeing the data, how much can you do to influence it? And how long does it take for the lifestyle changes to make a difference in your blood pressure results? Yeah, absolutely. So that's exactly where, Actia, that's how we think about it, is that in between your once a year visit with your physician or healthcare team, or maybe less than once a year, there's all this time that goes by. And how can we give people accurate, validated, regulated, medical grade data and wrap around that data activation plans, care plans? How can we empower them to look at that data, to understand what it means and to understand how some part of that is in their control? And they can go out and here are the five things you can do to, to try to change what we're seeing with your data and then see what changes. And generally, like lifestyle changes for high blood pressure, which could include salt reduction, exercise activities, dietary changes, weight loss. There's a lot of sleep disorder connections with high blood pressure. So those things depends, but generally take a couple of weeks to start seeing a significant effect. Some of them could be quicker, but usually it's a few weeks till you see that your change is making a difference. And it's also sometimes difficult to measure that change when you're looking at one measurement at one point in time, because blood pressure fluctuates every day, up and down, up and down, up and down, hour to hour, minute to minute, it fluctuates. So if you only get one measurement out of this big, long curve, how do you really know, like, are you actually making a change or not? Or is that day just a bad day or did you just catch the peak or you have no idea? And so that's where the idea of a continuous, passive, automated blood pressure measurements that give you sort of that entire trend, give you the whole sort of moving picture rather than the snapshot. So you can really understand, okay, here's my pattern and here's the averages and here's what it looked like before I did dry January and then I did dry January and then here's what happened at the end of January and oh look there was no difference or oh look great look I did that and there was a significant improvement so those are things that are really empowering for people because for hypertension in particular we don't feel it so one of the major gaps is that we give people recommendations physicians always we talk about sodium reduction and exercise and blah 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 and the person might do it for a month or a week or two, but they don't feel any different. And they check their blood pressure occasionally and they're like, well, 
it looks kind of the same. I don't think this is very working very much. So there's not like a, a feedback for them, right? There's no feedback loop to encourage them to continue with that positive behavior. And so we try to build that in as a digital feedback loop to say, look, this intervention you're doing is really working. Keep it up. Or this intervention is not working. Don't spend your energy doing this. And, you know, let's go on to the next three things you can do. And that happens a lot in hypertension because people aren't one size fits all, but our treatments are one size fits all. And that's hypertension is a great example for that. If you go to the doctor for hypertension or I go to the doctor for hypertension, we're going to get the almost the same answers about everything, diet, exercise, weight, medications, everything's going to be almost verbatim the same, but we're two different people and our bodies are going to respond in two different ways to any one of those interventions. But here's the thing is that physicians don't know what you're going to respond to. We don't have data on that. We don't have science on that. And this is another major gap. So if we have this granular continuous data set, we can really look to see what changes make a difference for you, which intervention made a difference. If you're starting medication, which medication might work better for you than others and really start to get personalized about hypertension care and do it at scale, which is what's required for hypertension. That's really what we're trying to do with Adactium. That is so inspiring to me, just hearing all of these details. And the other thing I'm curious about is the tracking side of it, which I've been working on for quite some time. I've dabbled in a few different apps and find that hard to understand and to track my memory even. With my wearable technology that I'm using right now, every morning I wake up, it, it has like a journal questionnaire type of thing. And I'll find myself like, ah, oh, I don't remember what time I did this or that. I don't remember exactly how I felt. Even though I have a really good memory, <laughs> I think, it's still hard to remember all those little moments within our day. I've also tried through other apps tracking throughout the day, but that would get pushed away. I'd get focused on something else. Like tracking yourself and all the little changes is hard. And the other thing I found, even with the tracking, with all that data compiled after months of using some of these apps, the conclusions and the summaries I would get wouldn't really be as conclusive as I would like them to be. I want someone to say, the fact that you drank enough water really added up or the steps that you took, like you mentioned these things like diet, exercise. Most of us know these things are beneficial but for someone like me who's very data-oriented, I would like to know, does it make a difference if I drink four glasses of water versus eight? Does it make a difference what type of exercise I do? Like, how do we figure out all of that? Or is it not that important in your experience to know that finite? No, I think that there's a couple of things. So first of all, like certainly as we think about it, and I think other companies probably think similarly, the more we can get about your activity passively without you having without the user having to go in and annotate something the better but that's hard it's really hard because the sensors are only going to pick up certain things i mean the accelerometer will pick up motion you can derive activity from that your optical sensors will give you heart rate will give you blood pressure and heart rate okay that's transformative in and of itself but those are just three parameters so what's really crucial is to build that valuable data set of physiologic parameters, but then around it, enable the person to start annotating that data set. Now, that takes some active participation. 
And this is where the consumer wearables have in some ways done this part of our sort of ecosystem a disservice because we're so used to having everything automated. You click it and it works. You just open it and it works. You click on the phone and the Apple signal comes on and boom, it works. And your email is there and your texts are there and you don't have to think about it. Well, that doesn't work when you're talking about your health. That doesn't work when you're talking about your own personal physiology. If you want to know, for example, how much water intake had an impact on your heart rate baseline, well, the sensor is never going to be able to tell you how much heart water you're drinking, right? The only way for that app to pull in that data is for you to enter it. And there are countless other things that you could think about, right? And so like medication adherence or what type of exercise you mentioned that, that's a good one. Like, was I walking? Was I biking? Was I running? Was I jogging? What was the exercise? And then what happened with my physiologic parameters? Well, it's generally not going to be able to tell you without you putting in that data yourself. Your sleep tracking is another one that's pretty difficult. Yes, you can probably detect with, with an accelerometer when someone falls asleep and when they wake up, but it can't tell you like how many glasses of wine did you have before you went to sleep and did that affect your sleep or all the other things that might be a parameter. So again, getting back to value from the device, I think people will probably have to, if they want to get more value out of the device, they will probably have to have more bi-directional data flow between the user themselves and the device and their interface. And it's not going to be just automated, like what we expect now with our phones and our watches and other things. It's like it's super automated. It just works. And we like that about it. And we do. I like it too. Everyone likes it. But that has gotten us into a mentality that everything can be that way. And that is simply not the case when you're talking about health data, annotated data sets, just not going to have a sensor that does all those things. Well, Jay, I will say that I do have one thing that gets me close, which is a water bottle that measures how much water I drink throughout the day. So <laughs> maybe I'm in the exception, but that syncs to my Apple Watch and I have a little thing and it tells me how much water I've had. But what I don't know, to your point, like the data isn't like coming to a conclusion, even though my I can sync them together, it's still a bit vague. And I think that's probably where the software has some way to go, or maybe I'm just using the wrong wearable. That's a question <laughs> I'm wondering. Well, no, there's also a question of like, well, okay, so now let's say if you compile, like they have these health toolkits, right? That'll compile data from all these different sources, but do they allow bi-directional flow of that data? Do they allow your data from your water bottle to go to your other wearables app? My guess is it doesn't. So if that's the case, now you have to say, well, well, so what's the point then? If it goes into this, if it goes into this one, but it doesn't go over to this one, why not? Why can't they open those doors? Of course they can. There's a reason that they haven't. It's all proprietary and this and that. You know, they don't want to share. But that's if you had a way to compile it and the doors were all open and there was a lot of data sharing. So data sharing in medical, not just in wearables, but in the medical healthcare data itself is a big issue because traditionally they've just been siloed data sets. And so one organization's data doesn't talk to another organization's data. When the payers can't access it, governments, you know, there's all disparate data sets. And so one of the major, I think there's giant, huge fields and experts that just are talking about this. Is how do we really enable data sharing when we have trillions of exabytes or whatever of data that could be really useful when put it together, 
but they're all in different places and in different platforms. And that's same thing goes with these wearables. And I imagine I'm an outlier in the average consumer base that doesn't want to have to deal with all that because even though I'm very interested in it and very tech skilled, I still feel confused. (laughs) It still feels messy and frustrating. And I still have days where I don't feel like typing in anything and answering questions. I want to just be left alone. But I also keep coming back to all of this because I want to feel good. I want to feel my best every day. And I would like to live a long life with health. And the data you're sharing today about the statistical data is a great reminder of that for me, Jay, and answer some questions. Like I actually went to one day a few weeks ago where I saw multiple doctors and I didn't understand why my blood pressure readings were different at each visit. <laughs> I walked in and I said, oh, you don't need to do my blood pressure. I just had it done at the other doctor. And they did it anyways. And I was like, what? Those numbers are, why are they different? <laughs> and now you have my curiosity very peak. I can't wait to see, do either of my devices that I currently have measure any of this? And if not, you might have me as a customer because I'm curious and I want to take good care of myself. I think obviously you're not alone in that sentiment. And I think that there is a challenge getting back to sort of this question that you posed before between the human side of things and technology and how that affects our health and how that affects our brain health. And one of the things I think we need to always remember, and there are some really great examples of this recently, is that there are many determinants of true wellness and true sort of happiness, if we can use that as a scientific term. And if you look at studies that have been done on people to try to understand who has a better sense of their wellness versus and happiness versus others, actually it has pretty little to do with like scientific data or like technological inputs. It has to do with socialization. It has to do with human connection has to do with friends and family. And I think that is being magnified recently by large-scale studies that you probably have seen in major press media about the detrimental effects of social media on both young and older people. Tremendous negative mental health side effects. And it's so clear that there is an addictive process there that really is detrimental, especially to our younger generation. And I think that's really an area that we need to focus on that although we have all these devices and all this stuff around us, still that I think we as humans still need that human connection. And I think that's what we're seeing in the outcomes of these studies is that there's a lack of that human connection because everyone's in their screen connecting with somebody else is not really the same as walking down the street and having a conversation or going to a movie or whatever, traditional (laughs) interactions. And that's one of the benefits of wearable tech, in my opinion, is one of the reasons I've enjoyed the Apple Watch for so long is I don't have to carry my phone with me. The things that I was dependent on for so long with my iPhone, I now get a lot of those same things on my wrist. And sure, it's still tech, sure, it can still be distracting, but it gives me a better chance of connecting and being present and making eye contact And to your point too, the other device I'm currently using, it does ask me each day how much time I connected with friends and family. And I'm grateful it does. The data still is a little inconclusive, 
But what I wish it would ask me is how much time I spent on social media. I think that side, that Apple added, I think Android did as well, is you can actually go and see how much screen time you spend. And there's a breakdown. And I've been off social media for about, I think, three or four months now entirely. I actually would be curious, like, what were some of these data points before and after? Because... I think that's where another benefit of data can come into play for people is just much like going to the doctor and they're getting their blood pressure read, or maybe they're using a device that does it at home. I think if people were presented with more data about these detriments and determinants to our health, maybe that would help them make decisions versus, to your point, you read these news stories and they're often sensationalized. The media does that they might not apply to you whatsoever. And so we go about our days thinking maybe we're the exception or maybe we're in a different category. And I'm very passionate about raising that awareness around things like social media. And I'm so glad you brought that up, Jay. I think it's a beautiful thread through with this conversation was human connection. And I hope we're modeling that in our conversation today. To me, this is why I much prefer podcasting to creating social media content because I want to connect with people like yourself and I want to connect with the listeners who would spend an hour with us doing a deep dive and thinking things through. I just am grateful that you brought up that reminder for us to consider. It's more than just all the little health metrics that we've been taught throughout our life, all those choices and changes, but beyond us, there's so much at play in how we impact one another. Absolutely. And that gets to how I always at least try to coach and speak to my patients is, yes, we want them to live longer and we want them to feel well. And But the purpose of all of that is for them to have happier, more connected, more sense of well-being in their life. That's really the purpose. So that always is the driving force, at least for me and my conversations. And whenever I brought that up or bring that up with patients, universally connect with that. That tells me that that is a universal, nearly universal feeling. It's never like, oh, I just want to live till I'm 93 or something like that. It's always like, I want to live well. And that's it. Like That's really what they want. But I think medicine, we could do a better job usually in talking about that. Well, thank you for being a really positive role model for other people in your field and also other wearable technology. I feel like you've raised the bar, you've set a high standard, and hopefully that can help cut out some of the fluff that we've talked about and help people make better decisions for themselves. Ultimately, that's the big aim of conversations like this is just to have the data, you know, have the inspiration so that you can choose what works best for you. And I really appreciate the way that you approach that and your transparency and your awareness of all of these important factors and our well-being is is absolutely beautiful to witness. So thank you so much, Jay. I've learned so much from you. You've motivated me and sparked my curiosity in ways I wasn't expecting. So I'm really grateful for that. Thank you so much. And for those that want to learn more about Actia and Jay, All the links will be provided for you. I think I have a few from you, Jay. So I'll put that all in one place if somebody wants to continue their journey and their education and collect more data. That'll be in two places for the listener. One is within your podcast player in the description 
you might need to click the see more button and there'll be a little paragraph with some links there. And underneath that, there are episode show notes and you can click on that or you can go directly to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. There's the full blog post from this episode with quotes and resource links and lots of information to collect there. If you're like me and you like to take in data auditorily, but also through the written word, both angles are covered for you at wellevator.com. Thanks again, Jay. And for the listener, I will see you again in just a few days. Bye for now. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.